All right, so today we're going into the, uh, our fourth installment and final installment of the, uh, the book of Ruth. And I titled this one, An Unlikely Legacy. When I think of that, and I've shared a lot of Parkland stories. I don't know how many of you have been to Parkland Hospital recently, but if you go, you see this glass. Uh, what the image here is basically a tree. To, the, to that side, you see the, the main trunk of the tree and then branches. And you see this in different areas of the building, not just the main near the main entrance. And what that is, if you get real close up to it, those are names, names of donors. Sometimes even employees who donated from their pay to donate to the construction of the new Parkland Hospital, one of the largest hospitals in the nation, 17 floors. And it's uh, also one of the largest, definitely largest uh, community or public uh, county hospitals. I'm not sure on the numbers, but it's about 25,000 names that are part of this image. And again, it's people's own names. Sometimes people have paid to put their children's names on there, our family members' names on there. And you can go, you can see here, somebody went up there and can point out, there's me, there's my name. There's where I am. And it speaks to this idea of legacy. We all want to be part of legacy. We all want to receive as well as pass down a legacy. So I got this, this definition uh, of legacy. And you see it says an amount of money or gift, property, left to someone in a will. Uh, and it has these synonyms there. And of the synonyms, the ones that stand out to me are, in terms of scripture, are inheritance and birthright. It has a second kind of definition, just a thing handed down by a predecessor. And, and on that one, the synonyms are things like a consequence, uh, result. And it also gives this idea that legacy can also be a bad legacy. Sometimes I, I think of this the story of... Um, uh, Woody Harrelson. If you don't know Woody Harrelson, the actor uh, for younger generation, that's Hamish in the Hunger Games series. That's Woody Harrelson. For those of us like maybe my age, that's you know the bartender from Cheers, also uh, white men. White men can't jump, and uh, so many other movies that that Woody Harrelson played in. He's been acting since the 80s. But his father is a contract killer. If you look into his story, his father was sentenced to, to two life sentences for, for assassinating a judge, a, um, federal judge in San Antonio. Uh, so, so there's a negative legacies, neg negative leg legacies that we want to get away from. And overall, there's this, this legacy. This is something that speaks to, to who we are. I was reading this article, it says this about legacy. We all want to be remembered to feel that we've contributed something to the world. For some, this can be a driving force leading to great accomplishments and extraordinary contributions to mankind. But for most of us, with more modest goals, what pushes us is the desire to leave a legacy. Your legacy is putting your stamp on the future. It's a way to make meaning of your existence. It's saying, yes, world of the future, I was here. Here's my contribution. Here's why I hope my life mattered. 
And it goes on. There are many ways we can leave a legacy. The most obvious is bequesting an inheritance to your survivors through your last will and testament. But your legacy is about far more than material things. So there's that also that idea that it's not just the money we leave, but it's also maybe the values we pass down. So I titled this one, The Unlikely Legacy. And it's because in the story of Ruth, we have two widows, Naomi and Ruth, who have nothing. They're impoverished, they're poor. They have, they have received nothing, they have nothing to pass down. Not only that, but they're widows without children. They have no one to pass it to. And this culture, more than 2,000 years ago, Hebrew culture, women were, I, I guess they have not, no one to take care of them. They're very vulnerable. Without husband, without children, they have no one to care for them. And so even in our culture today, we can kind of think the same way that without any of these things, what legacy do you have? But the cool thing is that in God's economy, God says, no, that, that's not how it's going to work because I am God, because they love me. I think of Psalm 91 where it ends with the, because he loves me, I will show him my salvation. I will protect him. I will guard him. These are two women who love God. And God says, no, it's not going to happen that way. It's not going to be the way the culture thinks. It's not going to be the way the world thinks, but it's going to be the way I make it because I will give them a legacy. I'll give them a legacy that they have no idea how great it's going to be. And that's what we see in the story. So before we go into the chapter four, let's talk about what we've talked to kind of review. Let's go over what we've already discussed. So the importance of names, I keep bringing this up because in the Old Testament, names mean something and they tell part of the story. <clears throat> so in this book, our first character is Elimelech and his name means my God is king. And we would imagine this would be the hero. This is the first guy listed in the story, and his name is an awesome name. You can't go wrong with that kind of name, but he doesn't live up to his name. So there's an irony there. After that, we have his sons, Malon and Kilion. Their names mean weakness and annihilation, and, and they die in Moab as, I guess, living up to their names. Then we have Naomi. Naomi is Elimelech's wife, and her name means pleasant. But after her sons die, after her husband dies, she rejects that name. And I, I don't blame her. And, and that point of depression, that point of despair, I don't know how I would react. But I understand where she's coming from. She rejects her name and says, I don't want to be called Naomi, which means pleasant. I want to be called bitter. I want to be called Mara. And we see that in the text. Then next we have Orpah. This is one of the, the wives from Moab. This is the wife of Kilion, and, and she leaves. She, she does what we would think is a smart, safe thing. She, after her husband dies, she decides to stay in Moab. Her name means back of neck, which is the last thing we see of her in the story. She turns around, she leaves her family at the time, or she leaves Ruth and Naomi, her married and two family, her in-laws, to go back to her own God and her own country, <clears throat> and that's her name. Then we have Ruth. Her name means friend. And she's also the Moabitess. She's also from Moab. She marries into this family, and she marries Malon. And she decides to stick to Naomi and go with her back to Jerusalem. Then Boaz, who we meet in Jerusalem, his name is in him 
there is strength. And we see that strength come to life in chapter 3 last week, and it's a strength of character. Not a physical strength, but a strength of character. So as we look at our, our chapters again, chapter 1, we talked about the unlikely hero. How God uses normal people like you and me to make his power manifest. To show that he doesn't need what the culture thinks is the most powerful, awesome person out there. He uses the least likely. He uses this Moabitess, poor widow to be his hero. In the same way he can do that for me and you. As uh, Keith was talking today, hindsight being 2020, God has a plan for all of us. And he makes the unlikely likely. It also showed that God was at work in our lives. We see that theme again in the second chapter is unlikely coincidence. The fact that Ruth just so happens to stumble upon the field of her kinsman and redeemer, Boaz. And the point is, it's not a coincidence. That hindsight being 2020, we can see how God's hand was at work in preserving a certain plan, preserving a certain line that he wants to continue. Because if Ruth and Naomi die in Moab, the line dies with them. Their, their ancestors, everything, or whoever would follow them dies with them. In a similar way, their, their names would, could be wiped from the pages of history altogether. So that doesn't happen. And we're here more than 2,000 years later still talking about Ruth and Naomi. So there's no coincidence. Your life is not a coincidence. God has a plan for your life. Whether we're going through joys or going through tribulation, all of that is somehow part of God's plan for his purpose, for his overall redemption of mankind. But especially in this story. And we'll, and we'll see how that unfolds in chapter 4. Last week, we talked about the unlikely resolve. How Boaz, as he demonstrated his strength of character, showed that his will was in line with God's will. That instead of taking advantage or taking, uh, accepting Ruth's proposal for marriage right away, immediately, he stopped. He put the brakes on and said, I'm not going to do this the wrong way. I'm not going to do this in a hurry. I'm, gonna do, I'm going to do this God's way. I'm going to talk to the nearer Redeemer. And, and again, this, this resolve to stand up and be who he's supposed to be. Many of us, you know, we claim to be Christians, but do we have the resolve to live as Christians? And that's kind of the lesson we, we take from, from that chapter. And today we go into the unlikely legacy and the overall idea that God has provided a legacy for us that we have a responsibility to pass down. So let's go into Ruth chapter 4. starts off, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. Boaz called him by name and said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz then took ten men of the town's elders and said, sit down here. And they sat down. He said to the near redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the land of Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. So what's happening at the town, at the, the city gate, is where, where a lot of legal actions happened. 
And, and so you need witnesses, you need elders, you need people to witness certain transactions of, of selling and buying the property. But you also have, and the story, just, just to make it clear, that word at the very end, our brother, Elimelech, that's really just our relative. It's not like they were born from the same exact mom and they're actually brothers, but this, this word in Hebrew, they don't really have that, that same word brother. They don't use it. They, they have this word that just means relative. So sometimes it's hard to tell how many, say, generations removed a relative may be. But overall, he's talking to his relative. It goes on. It says, I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do so. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone after you other than you, and I am next after you. I want to redeem it, he answers. So, so that nearer kinsman redeemer, he says, yeah, okay, I'll take this land. And Boaz is kind of being a little sneaky. He's not telling him the whole story. He says, oh, there's this land here that's for sale. Do you want it? Uh, do you have the right to buy it? You have the right as a kinsman redeemer. And we talked about this idea of the redeemer, the goel, having the ability to, to buy back property so that it stays within their, their tribe, or within their family. Uh, the other, other responsibilities are, are to, to marry a widow of a family member so that that name can live on and they can propagate children for that family member. Seems odd today, but that was part of the culture, so we just kind of have to work with that. I know it seems strange. But, uh, so so then, then Boaz gives out the next bit of information. It says, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also require, acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. And I, I still love, like I mentioned before, almost every time we see the name Ruth, what do we see? That she's a Moabitess. Exactly. It never, they don't hesitate to say, by the way, she's a foreigner. She's from Moab, which is this like country that people from Jerusalem don't really like. They have their own God, a different God. So it always emphasizes Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the foreigner, Ruth who is not like us. And it kind of brings that up in this, this Jewish culture and reinforces the idea that Naomi brought up in chapter 1, saying it's kind of unlikely you're going to find a husband in Jerusalem because they don't really like Moabites. They don't want to marry non-Jewish women because it's, there's laws and there's, there's culture and tradition. But so, so Boaz mentions this, you know, oh, you're going to also get this, the wife comes with the land. So the kinsman redeemer says this, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. So, again, this idea of being the goel, the kinsman redeemer, wasn't just a privilege. It was a, considered a responsibility, a duty to buy back the land and, and to, to help this widow and to claim the wife and, and to propagate the, the family for that, for that line. And, and here he is where he wants the land, but he doesn't want the responsibility that comes with it. He wants the property, the, the wealth, but not, not, not the responsibility. And, and there's the difference. 
there's this idea, like, he's worried about the consequence. Like, that's going to affect my inheritance. I don't want to take a risk. I don't want to stand for, for what is right if it means I have to give personal sacrifice. And so he's rejecting his right. It almost reminds me, if we think about Esau and Jacob, where Esau gives up his birthright for a bowl of soup. He says, I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption. Take this right that I have. He's given away a right, as well as shunning his responsibility. And here's another thing, if you haven't noticed it, this is a good point, time to bring it up. What's his name? What's the nearer redeemer's name? This, like I said, names are important. This is a book where almost every important person is named Elimelech. It doesn't speak at all in the entire story. He dies. Malon, Kilion, they don't speak at all. They die. Orpah, real small part, but her name is in the story. Then Ruth, Naomi, Boaz. But this guy, the nearer kinsman redeemer, if you go back to verse 1, it said, see, verse 1. When, when, he, uh, when, Bo, when Boaz talks to him, it says, Boaz called him by name and said, come over here and sit down. What was his name? The point is, because he refused this duty, this right, this responsibility, his name is essentially erased from the pages of history. More than 2,000 years later, we're still speaking about Ruth, Boaz, Naomi, even Orpah, Elimelech, and all the others, but this guy is gone. No legacy whatsoever for this guy. That's, that's really key to pick up. We don't notice it sometimes when you read the story, but it is essential to the, the impact of the story of legacy and history. So, so the next scene is kind of a historical scene. It says, verse 7, At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was a method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So that's just like a little side story. And the, the purpose is really, it, it highlights the fact that this story, when it was told, it was told at a later time. And most scholars attribute the book of Ruth as being written by Samuel. So at least in, in the Christian canon, the order is Judges, Ruth, Samuel, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. And that's part of the reason why. But it's this idea that they're telling the story to a new generation. It's kind of like if we're telling a story or I'm telling a story to my daughter one day about, you know, I was driving down the highway. I had to roll down my window. I was like, roll down? What do you mean by roll? Well, there's, there's this crank on the window, and you had, to, you had to roll it like this to see. Like, What? It's crazy. Why, why would you have to do that? Or you, you can see, see what I mean. Like we have to sometimes explain older things to a new, newer generation who can't necessarily relate to, to what we're talking about. The other might be, uh, you know, I went to Six Flags. You know, we were there. We got a Polaroid. It was great. It's like, a what? A Polaroid. Wait, what? what's a Polaroid? Well, it's an instant picture. Like Instagram? No, no, it's a little different. 
you, you took the picture and it came out the camera and you, you shook it and you had your picture within like 20 seconds, 30 seconds. You had to wait 30 seconds to get a picture? Like, yeah. And before that, we would take pictures and we'd drop our film off at the store. And a week later, we got, you had to wait a week to see the pictures you took? But, but now you see, so all he's doing, he's telling the story. Like back then in this time, this is how they did a contract. And the significance is a little strange, but this idea that where you walked, that's your property. So by taking off your sandal, you're saying whatever property I've walked on is now yours. And that, that was, it's an odd tradition, but that was, that, that was the way they did it. So then it goes on. So the Redeemer, again, what's his name? Yeah. So, so the Redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I will also acquire Ruth from where? Moab. I will also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife. To perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property, so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his home. You're a witnesses today. So again, there's this line that's being preserved. And this is all part of God's plan. Then the elders, they bless him. They say, the elders and all the people who are at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Lee, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful and Ephrathah and famous in Bethlehem. And we talk about Rachel and Lee. These are both women who are barren, who gave birth late at late ages. And they're, they're the births of the, the, the fathers of Israel. And so it, it's, it's key that we pick that up and see that also, very likely, Ruth was barren. She was in Moab, married to Malon, or Kilion, one of those, uh, for about 10 years. You'd imagine they probably tried to have children, but it didn't happen. Then next verse, 12, says, May the house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Again, here's another name that when we look at the history, there's some deception that goes on in how, how Tamar is uh, and Judah come together. Uh, but it's still all part of that, preserving this particular line in Judah, of the tribe of Judah. And verse 13 says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he was intimate with her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. So again, there's that idea that Ruth was very likely barren. But now, God says God opened her womb. He says God, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. 
And this idea of praising the Lord has not left you without a family redeemer. Now, now the son becomes part of that redemption, that family redeemer. And, and we, then we learn more about him. In verse 16, it says, Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and took care of him. The neighbor women said to him, said, A son has been born to Naomi. said, he will renew your life and sustain your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better than seven sons, has given birth to him. And that was just a, a symbol of blessing. If you had seven sons, but here he's saying it's even better than seven sons, even better than that blessing, this Moabite lady, woman, Ruth. So now it says, Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and took care of him. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. Now Obed, that name means, kind of has two meanings. It means servant and means worshiper. And when we see this child in the Old Testament, it's almost really a preview to the coming of Christ. This idea that a child is our savior, a helpless, dependent baby. But that becomes a savior. Obed becomes Naomi and Ruth's savior. And you also have this idea that his name, servant, it seems like a strange name. Like you wouldn't want to name somebody servant or slave or, or something like that. But then we think about Jesus who said, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So servant, to be a servant is, is a pretty awesome thing. Even Jesus says, it's not the the greatest who will be on top. It's the least who, be, who will be made great. The servant. And that's who he is. And what we find out about him, they named him Obed. Here, here's the big kind of epiphany, if you will. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this is the line that's being preserved. The Davidic, the beginning of the Davidic line that Obed was the father of Jesse, who's the father of King David. And of course, future generations, we know that from David comes Jesus Christ. So now Ruth is part of this legacy. The widow with no money, no children, no hope, God has said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change this. Now she's part of this legacy that, that continues on to eternity. A legacy greater than anything she could ever have imagined. All because she chose to follow God. In chapter 1, she says, your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I, I will die. She went and she followed Naomi. 
and her God. Then it, then it closes with this genealogy. It says, now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, who fathered Animadad. Aminadab follow, fathered Nishan, who fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, who fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, who fathered David. And that's where the story ends. So there's the legacy, the unlikely legacy that no one could have seen or predicted of this lowly Moabite foreigner. So again, she's a foreigner. She's not like us. She's not one of us. But she becomes part of this line of David. And she's mentioned again in the book of Hebrews and other areas of the New Testament that she, she's an important person in this story. Now, to kind of review what we talked about, just quick once over, the nearer kinsman, again, he's erased from the pages of history. He has no legacy. The guy that had a right, he gave it away. Maybe we can think about what, what rights are we giving away when we choose not to do certain things, carry through with certain responsibilities we have as, as Christians. Then we have Boaz, who is blessed by the elders and by God for his actions. He chooses to do what is right multiple times throughout the story. He, he demonstrates his character of strength over and over again. Then Ruth, again, the Moabitess, the foreigner, receives a legacy that God had in store for her. And again, I love thinking of this, this idea. Again, she's a foreigner, but so are all of, all of us. None of us are, are Hebrew. None of us are born into this, right? None of us have this gift. But we're, we're still part of that legacy because God has made it that way. And I kind of fast forward into the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says this so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as his chief cornerstone the whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary and the Lord you also are being built together for God's dwelling and the Spirit. So this idea that, that us as foreigners were built in to this, to this legacy. Christ has made a way for us to be sons and daughters of God. Sons, and, sons with Christ. So we are part of that legacy. Again, this is the pictures from Parkland Hospital. We have this desire for legacy. We want to be part of something big. We want our name to be written somewhere that other generations can come and see, this is what I did. But what's bigger than that is, and my thought, is being written in the book of life. I'm sure that Ruth, Naomi, Boaz are written in the book of life. But a near kinsman redeemer? Probably not. So again, we talked about the unlikely hero, how God uses normal people, everyday people, to make his power known. We talked about that in chapter 1. Chapter 2, 
this idea that our life is not a coincidence. Whether, whether we're going through tragedy or joy, God is using that for his plan and his purpose. As Keith said, God has a plan for our lives. Then the unlikely resolve, the, the, the unlikelihood of being able to stand up and really stand up for what we believe by, by acting out as Christians and doing what we, what we say we're supposed to do by loving others, by making personal sacrifice, and this legacy that we've received because of what, because of what Christ has done, we receive a legacy. And because we received it, my challenge is first to claim, to claim our legacy, to stand up and say, to, to yes, that I am a Christian, I am a follower of God but also to pass that legacy down to the next generation, whether it be family, friends, strangers, someone who needs a legacy. Thank you. Please join me in a brief word of prayer. Father God, we thank you as always for your word. We thank you, Father, for your adoption of us. Those who are just normal, everyday people, we're sinners, fallen people in a fallen world. But Lord, you pick us up and you make us clean. You wash away our sin and you make us your sons and daughters. You invite us to an inheritance that we cannot even imagine. And we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that we can lay claim to that. That we stand up and do what you call us to do, to be the men and women you've designed us to be. And Lord, we pray we have the resolve to follow your command of making disciples and sharing your word. Father God, we thank you and we give you the glory in all things. In your son's holy name, amen.